right when we're there in Isaiah chapter 36, and I'm, uh, I'm excited uh, to be uh, in Isaiah 36 tonight because, uh, like I was explaining to you last week, uh, Isaiah is divided into three different parts. There's three parts of the book of Isaiah. The first part goes from chapter 1 through 35, and to be honest with you, it's just a real negative uh, part of the book of Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah is just basically, you know, doom and gloom and hellfire and brimstone. It's just, you know, this judgment on these people and this burden on these people, and he's just uh, preaching real, uh, just, you know, God is destroying these different countries for all their wickedness, and all that's great. And then we get into chapters 36 through chapter 39, and this is the middle section, and this is the, the, the narrative of the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, for the most part, has just been us learning what Isaiah's been preaching. We're just reading the sermons from Isaiah. But in chapters 36, 37, 38, 39, we actually get a story during the time of the life of Isaiah and the king, uh, Hezekiah, who's the king at this time. And then from chapters 40 and uh, 66 are just very interesting, very uplifting type chapters that have to do with a lot with uh, prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ and all those things. And it'll be interesting as we get into that. But this middle section of Isaiah kind of serves as a transition between the first part and the last part of the book of Isaiah. Because the first 35 chapters dealt with Assyria. Do you remember Assyria was the nation? And just to kind of give you a little bit of a, of a history story, and go, go with me to 2 Chronicles 29. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 36. That's our text for tonight. But go to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. If you remember, the nation of Israel had been split up into two different uh, uh, countries, two different nations. You had the northern uh, nation of Israel, and then you had the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And uh, they, they had two different kings. They had two different uh, political systems. The, the nation had split up there. And uh, the nation of Assyria came in and captured that northern kingdom of Israel. And they dispersed them into all the different, you know, nationalities and, and, they, and they got rid of them. Now, the nation of Assyria is trying to come down and destroy uh, the nation of Judah. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Now, they will not succeed, but eventually Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar will come in and he will take uh, the, the kingdom there of, of Judah into captivity. And that's where we get the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So here's what you got to understand. The first 35 chapters of Isaiah deals with Assyria. The, the chapters from 40 to 66 deal with the impending Babylonian you know, empire coming in. So you've got Assyria at the first part, you've got Babylon in the middle uh, at the end, and then in the middle you've got the, the story of Hezekiah, and it's four chapters. The first two chapters is Hezekiah dealing with the Assyrians, the last two chapters is Hezekiah dealing with the Babylonians. So it kind of transitions us into dealing with the Babylonian you know, captivity and all of those different things. It's just a transition of the book, uh, and it fo- takes the focus away from Assyria to Babylon. Are you there in Second Chronicles 29? Now, here's what I want you to understand. We're going to be reading over the next four weeks as we study these chapters about King Hezekiah. And before we can really get into what's going on in the book of Isaiah, I want to just give you a little bit about the life of Hezekiah because in the book of Isaiah, we kind of jump into the middle of the life of Hezekiah. And I want to show you just some highlights about Hezekiah because you've got to understand this. Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings of the southern kingdom of Israel. And Hezekiah actually led the nation of Israel with the help of the prophet Isaiah into a great revival. Are you there in 2 Chronicles 29? Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 5 and 20 years old. He's a 25-year-old young man, and he becomes the king of the southern kingdom of Israel. And he reigned 9 and 20 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Verse 2. And notice what the Bible says. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, you don't read that a lot about these kings. Now, in Judah, they had more kings that did right in the sight of the Lord. But even Judah didn't have that many of them. So this is a great uh, uh, thing that is said about Hezekiah. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Look at verse 3. He, in the first year of his reign, so he becomes king, and in the first year of his reign, in the first month, you see that? Second uh, Chronicles 29.3, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So the very first thing he does is he opens the house of the Lord. Now you say, well, what is that referring to? Here's what you got to understand. When Hezekiah becomes king, they have actually shut down the temple. 
They've basically eliminated the temple. They closed the doors. The temple, remember Solomon built this great temple. Moses built the tabernacle. And then Solomon came in and built the temple. And you got all that, uh, you know, all those great chapters about the building temple. By the time Hezekiah becomes king, the nations uh, uh, of Judah and Israel have basically just put the temple out of business. They closed the doors. They boarded up the windows. Nobody's using them anymore. And Hezekiah comes in. And I want you to notice, it's the first thing he does. The first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites, because these guys are unemployed. They're not working anymore. But he goes out and he finds them, the priests and the Levites, and gathered them together into the east street and said unto them, notice what he says, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. So Hezekiah becomes king, and the first thing he does, he says, let's put the temple back in business. Let's put the house of God back in business. Let's open the doors. He finds the, pre- the priest and the Levite. He said, why don't you guys sanctify yourselves, and why don't you get ready, and why don't you go in that house of the Lord, and you clean it up, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. Skip down to verse number 10. Second uh, Chronicles 29, look at verse 10. This is Hezekiah speaking. He says, Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Because Hezekiah is the king, and he's sitting watching the northern kingdom of Israel have Assyria come in and destroy them. And now he has Assyria on his border, and they're, you know, attempting and threatening to come and destroy him. And he says, you know what? The first thing I'm going to do is get these people right with God. The first thing I'm going to do is open up the temple. The first thing I'm going to do is get the priests and the Levites to sanctify themselves and to clean out the temple. He says, it is in my heart, verse 10, to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. He said, I want to, I want to make a covenant with God, and maybe his wrath will turn away from us. Look at verse 15. And they gathered their brethren and sacrificed themselves and came according to the commandment of the king by the word of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. They're in there cleaning up the house, getting all the filth out, getting it ready for use. Verse 16, and the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad into the brook kingdom. So he's getting the house of God cleaned up. He's getting the Levites and the spiritual leaders to get right with God so that they can begin to do a spiritual work. Look at verse 20, 2 Chronicles 29. Skip down to verse 20. We could read the whole chapter and there's a lot there, but I'm just trying to give you a few highlights. Verse 20. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the rulers of the city. So he already got the spiritual leadership and said, you guys need to clean up your life. And you need to go in there and clean up the house of God. And we need to make a covenant with God and we need to make, get right with God. Now, he goes and gathers the rulers of the city. This is the political leadership. And went up to the house of the Lord. Can you imagine if we had a, a, a president that would come in and say, you know what? We need to get right with God. We need to get the preachers of this country to get right with God. We need to get the politicians to get right with God. That's what Hezekiah's doing. He goes to the spiritual leadership and says, you guys need to clean up your life. You need to clean up the, 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 the temple. We need, to get, we need to get right with God and maybe God won't destroy it. Then he goes to the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. He said, hey, you guys, come on, we're going to go to church. We're going to go to the house of God. Look at verse 29. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him, these are the rulers of the city, the, the politicians, bowed themselves in worship. Look at verse 30. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praises unto the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worship. Look at Second uh, Chronicles uh, chapter number 30. Look at verse 1. V- verse number 1 of chapter 30. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to all, also to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, I want you to catch this, okay? He's the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he sends to all Israel and Judah. He wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, which is the northern kingdom of Israel. He sends letters to them that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. Now, if you remember, the temple's been shut down. They haven't been keeping the Passover. 
But ever since they had a civil war and the northern kingdom split off from the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom did not come down to the southern kingdom, to the temple, and to keep the Passover. The northern kingdom set up idols, and they were worshiping at those idols, and they became a very wicked nation as a result of it. Now Hezekiah has cleaned up the, the, the temple of God, has cleaned up the spiritual leadership, has cleaned up the political leadership, and he says, you know what we got to do? We got to go back to that Passover. We got to reinstitute the Passover. We need to go back to the old path and the old ways. I'm sure people would look at Hezekiah and say, you're old-fashioned, Hezekiah. That Passover, that was a long time ago. But he said, we're going to go back to the Passover. And he even invites the northern kingdom to come out and keep the Passover with them down at the southern kingdom. Look at verse 6. So the post went with the letters from the king and his princes. Notice, throughout all Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom. And according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. Now, we're not going to read his entire letter, but here's what you got to understand, okay? The northern kingdom just got overtaken by Assyria. The northern kingdom just lost the war. They just lost the battle. And Hezekiah writes a letter and sends it to that northern kingdom. And he says, hey, listen, those of you that are escaped out of the hand of the king of Assyria, the reason that this is happening is because we have turned away from God. And he invites them. And you got to keep in mind, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, they're not friendly with each other. They're, they're enemies for the most part. There were some kings that kind of, you know, hanged around together. But they're not, they're not friends, you know. And he's telling them, hey, why don't you come down to church? Why don't you come down to the house of God? Why don't you come down and maybe God will help you and maybe God will, will bless you and maybe God will not, you know, hurt you anymore. Those of you that are escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Look at verse 10. So the post passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, that's the northern kingdom, even unto Sebulun. But they laughed them to scorn. They, they, they thought it was funny. They said, we're not going to go down to the southern kingdom. We're not gonna. They laughed about keeping the Passover. They laughed about the temple and mocked them. Verse 11, nevertheless, divers of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun, this is the northern kingdom, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And that's always the, the, the case, by the way. When we go out soul winning and we're knocking doors, there are people that laugh and mock and say, you guys are funny, you guys are zealots, you guys are ridiculous, I can't believe you're knocking on my door, I can't believe you believe the Bible. You guys, I mean, people will laugh at us when we go out and try to preach the gospel, but nevertheless, there are always some that do come. And there are always some that do believe. And there are always some that do humble themselves. And even here, they laugh them to scorn, verse 10. But in verse 11 it says, nevertheless, Diverse, meaning there was different kinds of them, of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So here you got a man who's not only getting the spiritual leadership right, he's not only getting the political leadership right, he's not only cleaning up the temple of God, he not only wants to get himself right with God, he not only wants to get his people right with God, he even has a burden for the enemy. He even has a burden for the northern kingdom, says, I want to help you guys get right with God. He's a good man, look at verse 12. Also in Judah... The hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. In Judah, in his kingdom, everybody was in one accord. They said, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, Hezekiah is leading us the right way. Look at verse 13. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread. That's the seven-day feast that was kept during the Passover time. In the second month, a very great congregation. And they arose and took away. Notice, don't miss this. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, they had altars to false idols because they closed down the temple and now they were worshiping idols and some of them were worshiping, quote unquote, the Lord, you know, Jehovah of the Bible, but they were worshiping them in altars. And when Hezekiah begins to get the people right with God, the Bible says they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars of incense took their away and cast them into the brook Kydra. They're getting the altars out. They're getting the filth out. They're getting right with God. Look at verse 23, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 23. And the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days, and they kept other seven days with gladness. Now, don't miss that. The feast was for seven days. This, this Passover feast was a seven-day thing. And when the seven days were done, the Bible says the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days, and they kept other seven days with gladness. After the seven days were done, they all got together and said, man, this is so great, man, this is so good. Why don't we just go ahead and do this for another seven days? 
The equivalent would be, you ever heard of like a revival meeting? You know, where like churches will say, we're going to have a revival meeting. We're going to have seven days of preaching. We're going to have all these guest speakers come in and you come to church for seven days and we're going to preach. You know, that's something that maybe has gone by the wayside now, but something that used to be done a lot back back in the old days. And the equivalent of that would be that after seven days, a church got so on fire and got so right with God. They said, why don't we do, do another seven days? Now, why don't we do another seven days of preaching? Why don't we do another seven days of church? I mean, could you imagine that? These people are saying, hey, seven days wasn't enough. Let's do another seven days. These people are starting to get excited about the things of God. Look at verse 26, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voices was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven for the first time in a long, long time. God is hearing the prayers of his people in Jerusalem. Now look at 2 Chronicles chapter 31, look at verse 1. Now when all this was finished, all Israel, that you're talking about the, the, the feast there, all Israel that were present out of the cities of Judah, notice what they did, notice what they did, and break the images in pieces, and cut down the groves, and threw down the high places and the altars of all Judah, and Benjamin, notice, and Benjamin and Ephraim, also in Manasseh, the northern kingdom, until they had utterly destroyed them all, then all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession and to their own city. Now, already in, in Jerusalem, they've taken out the altars. But after this 14-day revival, they said, you know what, let's just go into the entire country. And let's just tear down the images and cut down the groves and bring down the high places, the altars of Judah. Let's just get all the false doctrine. Let's get all the idols. Let's get everything that, that is, goes against God. Let's get it out of our city. They got so excited. Once they were done with Judah, they went up to the northern kingdom, which wasn't even their country, and they're just breaking their altars. You know, they're destroying their false images, and they're bringing down their groves, and they're just getting thoroughly right with God. You ever been there? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing to have a church that would get so excited about the things of God, you'd go home and start tearing down altars? You'd go home and throw out that television out the window? You'd go home and start getting those magazines out, getting those filthy DVDs out, and just start saying, I'm just going to go right with God. I'm so excited about this. I'm going to go to my neighbor's house and get his filthy movies out. You know what I mean? I mean, this is great. I'm so, I'm so excited about church. You know, let's have church on Monday. Let's have church on Tuesday. I'm so excited about the things of God. This is what was happening in the nation of Judah while Hezekiah was king. Great revival. Look at uh, 2 Chronicles 31. Look at verse 20. And thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandments, to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. Isn't that amazing? He did it with all his heart. Hezekiah, Hezekiah didn't have this net-nets issue, you know what I mean? He didn't say, well, I'll let down a net. No, he, he, everything that he was asked to do, he did it with all his heart and prospered. I want you to understand this. While Hezekiah was king, a great revival happened in the nation of Judah that even spilt over to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, don't miss this. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1. After these things, after what things? The great revival we've been reading about. After these things, after what things? They opened up the temple. After these things, after what things? They, they sanctify the priests. After these things, what things? They get the political leadership to get right with God. After these things, what things? They, they tear down the altars. They tear down the grove. They get rid of the idols. They get right with God. They clean up the house of God. After these things, the Bible says, and the establishment thereof, don't miss this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. Now, this is where we jump in in Isaiah chapter 36. Can you make your way back to Isaiah 36? Look at verse 1. Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1. Does this sound familiar? Now, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. You understand what's going on here? Hezekiah had a great revival. Hezekiah had a great spiritual awakening. 
Hezekiah had great success. People are getting right with God. People are getting serious about the things of God. No one's complaining about how long the service is going. No one's complaining. They're saying we want more church. We want more preaching. We want more Bible. We want more getting right with God. We, let, let, let's, let's, let's reach other people with the gospel. They're getting excited. And the very next verse, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, shows up. Here's what you got to understand. When you begin to get right with God, expect opposition. When you begin to get right with God, expect the enemy to show up. See, people come to church and they say, man, I, man I'm so excited about the things of God. And, man, I, I got saved. I got baptized. I started reading my Bible. I even showed up to church at an evening service. What's that about? You know what I mean? I, I, I got so excited about the things of God. And then the next week they're like, hey, Pastor, I don't know what's going on, but all my friends, they're starting to you know, make fun of me. And my family, they said they think I'm in a cult. And, and my, you know, all my friends, I can't, none of them want to return my call. And you know, what's going on? And here's what you got to understand. As soon as you start getting right with God, as soon as you start getting the filth out of your life, as soon as you start making the house of God a priority, as soon as you start getting your heart right and your house right and your family right, as soon as you start having revival, the enemy shows up. The opposition shows up. Sennacherib shows up. Just expect it. When you're doing something for God, expect opposition. When you're doing something for God, expect the enemy to come. Look at verse 2, Isaiah 36, verse 2. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshaki. That's the bad guy. Rabshaki is the general of the Assyrian army. From Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah. That's a good guy. With a great army. And he stood by the, conduit, by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, these are all good guys, which was over the house, and Shibna, the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. So you got, we got this meeting now. We've got the bad guys, Rabshaki and his great army, sent by the king of Assyria, and they're meeting with Eliakim and with Shebna the scribe and with Joah the recorder. And they are, uh, they are the representatives of King Hezekiah. And they're standing by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Look at verse 4. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? He said, he said what, what are you trusting in, Hezekiah? I say, sayest thou. Now, here's what he's saying. He says, I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. You got to understand, what we're reading in this chapter is basically Rapshaki is threatening Hezekiah, you know, and is trying to get Hezekiah to surrender. And he's talking to the representatives from Hezekiah, and he's giving Hezekiah a message. And he says, he says, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. So he doesn't know that this is what Hezekiah is saying, but he's saying, he's kind of talking to himself. He's saying, Hezekiah, are you, do you think that you have counsel and strength for war? He says, now on whom dost thou trust? Verse 5. Now he doesn't know who Hezekiah is trusting in. But he says, who are you trusting in, Hezekiah, that thou rebellest against me? Now, Rapshaki is a bully. Rapshaki is mean. Rapshaki is showing up, and he thinks he's big, and he thinks he's tough, and he's got the army with the winning record, and he's got all the military, and he shows up, and he says, Hezekiah, who are you trusting in? Who do you have your confidence in? Look at verse 6. Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt? Now, that's a false accusation. Hezekiah was not trusting in Egypt. In fact, for the last 35 chapters, Isaiah has been preaching and preaching and preaching to the people of, uh, of Judah. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Hezekiah shows up, gets the people right with God. He's not trusting in Egypt. In fact, uh, keep your finger there in Isaiah 36 and go with me just real quickly. Uh, not, not to 2 Chronicles, but to 2 Kings. 2 Kings also has the story of Hezekiah. And let me show you one verse there. 2 Kings chapter number 18. Hezekiah had just had this great revival. I mean, he just got rid of all these altars. He just uh, opened up the house of God. In 2 Kings chapter 18, look at verse 5. The Bible says, he, referring to King Hezekiah, notice what it says, trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Do you see that? 2 Kings 8, chapter 18, verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was not like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before. So according to the Bible, who is Hezekiah trusting in? The Lord God. Who is he trusting in? God, the God of heaven. Rabshakeh shows up and he says, are you, are you trusting in Egypt? 
He says, are, are you, look, look verse, go back to Isaiah 36, look at verse 6. Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed. Because Rabshakeh is just looking, you know, at the nations of the time. And he only sees one nation that might be able to fight against the Assyrian Empire. Because the Assyrian Empire at this time is the world power. And he, he says, well, the, the only ones that they might be trusting in is Egypt. So he, says, Are you, he said, verse, 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 uh, Isaiah 36, verse 6, Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if man lean, it will go into uh, his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. Now look, was Hezekiah trusting in Egypt? No. But what does Rabshakeh say? Rabshakeh says, are you trusting in Egypt? And let me tell you something. You start getting right with God. You start doing good things. You start trying to get close to God. People are going to accuse you falsely. I mean, my, you know, my wife and I will, will, will talk about this. It's amazing. What, you know, I'll preach a sermon and people will walk away and, and they'll say to us like, oh, yeah, your husband said, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, and she'll be like, my husband did not say that, you know. Or people say to me like, remember that one time you said, you know, this, this and so? And I've said, I never said those words. You know, but, it, you know, sometimes, and I understand, you're preaching, you know, for an hour, three times a week. People are going to hear what they're going to hear. But, you know, it's just interesting how people will say, they'll put words into your mouth. Oh, so-and-so, that's what he said. So-and-so, that's what he believes. And as a guy's like, I'm not trusting in Egypt. I don't have a confederacy with Egypt. I didn't make a deal with Egypt. I'm trusting in the Lord God of Israel. I'm not trusting in Egypt, but he's being accused falsely. Look, look at chapter, uh, verse number 7, Isaiah 36, verse 7. But if thou say to me, but if thou say, because remember, Rabshakeh's talking. He says, are you trusting in Egypt? Egypt's going to fail you. Egypt's not going to help you. But then he says this, and this is what he really wants to get at, verse 7. Because he's talking to Hezekiah. He says, but if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away? And said to Judah and to Jerusalem, he shall worship before this altar. Now, you got to understand what's going on here, okay? During this time, and for Rabshakeh and his culture and his nation, okay, the more altars they had, the better. And when Jerusalem and Judah and the northern kingdom had, when they closed the temple down, but they had all these altars, and some were to false gods, but some were altars to the God of heaven, even though God forbade them to have these altars, and even though he did not allow them to have these groves, when they had, you know, in, 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 in Rabshakeh's mind, he doesn't understand the God of the Bible. He says, are you trusting in the Lord? And then he says, he says to Hezekiah, aren't you the one that shut down all the altars? You know, he's, Rabshakeh is watching CNN, and he's seeing what's going on in Judah, that they're breaking down these groves, and they're breaking down these altars, and he says, aren't you breaking down the altars of God? Let me tell you something. When you start getting right with God, just understand this, that the world will not understand your position. The world will not understand the Bible. I mean, I, I'll preach a sermon about the fact that we ought not drink alcohol, and someone will walk up to me and say, well, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? I think myself, you don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, the Bible, you know, and I don't want to go into that. I'm just using an example. If you, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, I got a sermon I can give you. But, you know, I'm just here to tell you, you start getting right with God. You start getting the filth out of your life. You start doing right things. And people are going to look at your religion and say, well, Hezekiah, how is God going to protect you when you're the one that broke down his altars? And he doesn't understand that Hezekiah was doing a good thing by breaking down those altars and because they were only supposed to worship at the temple of God. See, people aren't going to understand your sin. Rabshakeh had a warped view of the God of the nation of Israel and of Judah. And today people have a warped view of Christianity. And you'll start doing things and they'll say, well, that's crazy. I mean, I thought the Bible, I thought the Bible didn't say, I thought the Bible said you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't. And they don't understand. They're not going to understand your position. They're going to think, whoa, why are you doing that? God's not going to help you when you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, king of Assyria. And I will give thee 2,000 horses, if thou be able, on thy part, to set riders upon them. Now, keep your finger there in Isaiah 36, okay? Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, just real quickly. Let me show you something. Deuteronomy 17. Because Rabshakeh is a smart guy. He's confused, but he knows what he's talking about in some of these areas. And Rabshakeh says to the people, he says, hey, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you... Uh, you know, give pledges to my master. He's basically saying, if you just, you know, decide right now, you don't want to fight, you're just going to give in, you're going to go ahead and be our servants, I'll give you 2,000 horses right now. 
But then he says, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. Now he's mocking them. He's laughing at them. He's saying, hey, you surrender right now, I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can put riders on them, ha, 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 ha. And he said, well, what, how's that funny? Well, look at Deuteronomy 17. Look at verse 15. Deuteronomy 17, verse 15. Thou shalt say, in Deuteronomy 17, we got the writings of Moses. And Moses is instructing the children of Israel how they are and the, the qualifications and the restrictions upon the king of, of their nation. Deuteronomy 17, verse 15. Thou shalt say, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. So he says, if you're going to choose a king, Moses is telling them, if you're going to choose a king, you need to choose a king whom the Lord chooses, and it needs to be one of your brethren. It can't be a foreigner. He said, it can't be a stranger. Don't bring somebody from another country to be the king. You've got to make sure they're, they're from the nation of Israel. Look at verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses to himself. Now, God told the king of, of, of Israel and of Judah to not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord had said unto you, ye shall re- henceforth return no more that way. One of the qualities or characteristics of the king that was to be the king of the nation of Israel was that he was not, he was forbidden to multiply horses. Now think about this. Okay, go back to Isaiah 36. Solomon and all these other kings, they just broke these laws and they multiplied horses, they multiplied riches, they got all these wives. But think about this. Hezekiah just led this huge revival. Right? Hezekiah is looking at everything that's wrong in his society, getting rid of it. If there were horses that were owned by the king, I promise you, Hezekiah already got rid of them. You say, well, why would he do something crazy like that? Because God told him to. Now, the world would look at that and say, why would a nation get rid of their horses? Because here you've got Assyria coming down with all their horses, with all their soldiers, with all their spears, with all their army. They're looking at Judah and they say, you guys don't even have horses. You don't even have guys that can ride horses. If I gave you 2,000 horses, you wouldn't have enough guys to put on them. He said, you guys can't fight us. You're no match for us. Now, think about this. To the world, it would be foolishness for a nation to have a military and have no horses. But see, God often will put us in a position of weakness. Because when we're weak, he's strong. And when we're defenseless, he can defend us, and he's the only one that gets the glory. But here, Rabshakeh, you go back to Isaiah 36 and verse 8. He says, hey, I'll give you, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put your set riders on them. He said, you don't even have guys that can ride these horses. He starts mocking them. He starts belittling them. Look at verse 9. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servant and put thy trust on Egypt for, Harriet, for chariots and for horses? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if I pick one captain, he says, the least. If I pick the smallest, weakest captain in my army, you couldn't even fight him. You couldn't even overcome him. He's, he's mocking them. He's belittling them. He's poking fun at them. And I'm here to tell you, you start getting right with God. You start doing the things that God wants you to do. You start cleaning up your life. I'm, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, the world will begin to mock at you. And they'll belittle you. I remember when we started our church, we started four years ago in our living room. And people were making fun of us. You guys going to start your church in a house? Yeah, nothing's going to come from that. You guys aren't going to accomplish anything. You're not going to do anything. And here's the thing. When you start trying to get right with God, the world will look at you and say, you guys, you don't even have horses. You don't even have a building. You don't even have a pulpit. I mean, how are you going to do the things that you need to do? And here Rapture keeps mocking. Here Rapture keeps making fun of them. Here Rapture keeps saying, one of the captains of the least of my servants, you can't even beat him. He said, we, he said, we could go to battle and we could blindfold ourselves and you couldn't beat us. He said, we, we could go to battle and we could tie our hands behind our backs and you couldn't beat us. He said, you guys are so weak. You're so pathetic. How do you think you're going to fight against us? Here's what Rapture is saying. Look at verse 10. Isaiah 36, verse 10. Then he says this. And I'm not... Am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? He says, the Lord said unto me, go up against this land to destroy it. Now here Rapture is telling a half truth, half lie. Okay, Because God did use the nation of Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. But God never ordained for the Assyrian empire to destroy the southern kingdom of, Israel, uh, of Judah. 
And Rabshake is telling the nation of Judah, he's saying, don't you get it? The Lord sent me to destroy you. The Lord said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. And let me, let me tell you something. Just because, just because someone is big and someone is successful and someone has a lot of resources does not mean they have God on their side. You understand that? I remember there was this guy, um, Sam Gipp. He uh, preached a sermon. Uh, you know, our our church took part in that in the film with uh, with Pastor Anderson, Faith Forward Baptist Church, uh, about after the tribulation, and he had a bone to pick with us. And he preached. He went to this big old pastors' conference with all these. There's like a thousand pastors there, and uh, and he preached a sermon where he like the entire sermon was about Pastor Anderson, and then he he mentioned me, and uh, you know he's preaching this to a thousand pastors. Can you believe that? It's not really how you know. I wonder, why don't I get invited to preach, you know, maybe because at these pastor conferences they're calling me out by name, you know what I mean? And this guy called me and said, hey, I, I preached against you, and I'm going to send you the CD, you know, and he sent me the CD where he preached against us or whatever. But here's what he was saying. He was mocking us, because at the time our church was like two years old, and he's like, he's like, those guys, you know, their church has like 10 people in it, and that was a lie. I mean, we had like, we, I don't know, we had like 50 people, I don't know. But, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're not even a pastor. You're an evangelist. Your church has zero people in it, you know? Like, you don't even, you know, but here's the thing. They're just mocking us. You know, and I, and I was thinking to myself, okay, by that logic, then Joel Osteen is just the most right with God. You know what I mean? I mean, by the logic, like, don't listen to Pastor Anderson and Pastor Jimenez because they have a church with, you know, 10 people in it, which was a lie anyway. You know, they have a church with 30 people. Don't listen to them. So by that logic, then I need to just get all my doctrine from Joel Osteen, right? Because he's got the largest church. Because whoever's at the largest church, obviously, they have the blessing of God. Obviously, God is blessing them. Obviously, God is helping them. Is that true? It's a lie. Look, just because people have big crowds, and just because people have resources, just because people have money, just because Assyria had the horses and the army and the military, and they came down and said, God sent us to destroy you. It was a lie. You know who God was with? Hezekiah. With no army, with no horses, with no resources. Because just because someone, the prosperity gospel is false, my friend. And just because somebody has a lot of money, has a lot of resources, oh, they're on TV and they got all these things, does not mean that God is on their side. And does not mean that they're right with God. And does not mean that they're doing the will of God. Look at verse 11, Isaiah 36, verse 11. You say, well, why, why do you call out Sam Gip by name? Hey, listen, if he called me out by name, you know, do unto others, right? You know, anyway. Isaiah 36, look at verse 11. Then said Eliakim and Shibna and Joah unto Rabshaki, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servant in, in the Syrian language. For we understand it. Now, now these are the good guys, right? Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. They've been listening to Rabshaki. Because remember, this is not in a, a private meeting. They're at the conduit of the pool. They're outside of the gate, basically, you know, just yelling into the city all these threats and all these things. So the good guys, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, said, Speak, I pray thee, verse number 11, unto the servants in the Syrian language. For we understand it. And speak not unto us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, Rabshakeh, if you talk to us in your language, in the Syrian language, we speak the Syrian language. You can speak to us in your language because we don't really want all these people, all these men that are on the wall listening we don't want them to hear everything that you're saying. Look at verse 12. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master, talking about the king of Assyria, sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Rabshakeh said, See, you don't understand. My, the king of Assyria did not send me to bring this message to the king of Hezekiah. He said, Hath he not sent me to the man that sit upon the wall? He said, the king of Assyria wants me to tell all the men of Judah. They want everyone to hear what we're going to do. He says to the men that sit upon a wall. Now, now listen to this. Because think about it. He's already been running his mouth. He's already been being, you know, mean and rude and crude. And, and, and the people said to him, hey, listen, why aren't you talking the Syrian language? We understand the Syrian language. You don't have to speak in the Jews' language. We don't want everybody to have to hear. And then he decides, you know what, I'm just going to step it up. Now notice what he says. Look what he says. To the men that sit upon the wall. Look at the last phrase of verse number 12 but that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you. So what is that about? Now what he's referring to is a siege. Because in these days, the, nation, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was a walled city. It was a strong tower. It was, it, it, it was a fort. 
And it, was, it would be hard for this army, even though it was a huge army, to come in and take over. So what they would often do is they would put a siege around the city. Basically, they'd surround the city outside of the walls. No one came in. No one came out. And eventually, if no one's coming in and no one's going out, guess what? You're going to start running out of food. And you're going to start running out of water. And in the Bible, there are stories where people had been under siege, cities have been under siege for a long time, and people are eating, eating their own dung and drinking their own piss. And I mean, even to the point where people are eating their own babies. Because, you know, when you start starving to death, I mean, people do horrible things. And he's, he's threatening them, and he's telling them, you know, the, this is what's going to happen to you. And, and let me just say this. For those of you that are offended, you know, by the word piss, it's in the Bible, okay? The Bible says the words of God are pure. You know, and people, you see, you see these words, and it's like, I can't believe you said, man, you, there is more filth on your television, and you know it. I mean, you, you listen to more garbage from your TV and your radio all week long, and then you come to church, and you read the word piss or, you know, dung, and you say, I can't believe that they would say that. It's in the Bible. It's the Word of God. I don't know what the NIV says. Does it say P? I don't know, you know. They, like, updated it, I guess. Look at verse 13. Then Rabshakeh stood. And cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king. Now he's talking to the people. He says, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city shall not be delivered into the hand which the king of Assyria. Let me just give you, give you one more thing. We're getting ready to close this down. When you start getting right with God, the enemy shows up. And he begins to mock you. And he begins to belittle you. And he begins to cause doubt in you, saying, don't trust in God. Don't trust in the Lord. He's not going to deliver you. He begins to lie to you and say, God's the one that sent me to destroy you. But listen to me. If it doesn't affect you, then they begin to attack your followers. See, husbands, protect your wife. Because if Satan can't get to you, he'll try to get to your wife. And if he can't get to your wife, he'll try to get to your children. If he can't get to the pastor, he'll try to get to the church people. I mean, it's interesting to me that every time someone comes to this church and they're crazy and insane and got false doctrines, it's funny how they never come to me, they never come to my wife, they never say anything weird to us, but they'll go to church people and say all these weird things. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy the follower. And here you've got them saying, hey, listen, these guys don't have to hear all this. Just talk to us in the Syrian language. We're the ambassadors. Just let us know what you want us to say, Hezekiah. And he says, I'm not here to talk to you. I'm here to talk to everybody. I want to tell them that they're going to be eating their own dung and drinking their own piss. I want them to get scared. I want them to be afraid. I want to put terror in them. I want them to understand what's going to happen if they don't, you know, submit to us. Look at verse 16. Hearken not to Hezekiah. This is Rabshaki speaking. For thus saith the king of Assyria... Make an agreement with me. Now, that's always what Satan wants. Look, Satan doesn't want to fight you. Satan does not want to go into battle with you. You know why? Because usually, when you go into a fight, it actually makes you stronger and actually draws you closer to God. You know, one of the greatest things that would happen for the United States of America to get the gospel would be for us as Christians to be persecuted. Because whenever persecution comes, Christians that were lame when there was freedom, Christians that were lazy when there was freedom, Christians that when you had the freedom to go knock the doors, when you had the freedom to go preach the gospel, when you had the freedom to go do the work, they wouldn't do it. But as soon as persecution comes, now you get all mad and say, well, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go preach the gospel. I mean, look at it in the Bible. Every time persecution came, the people of God got right with God, the people of God. And by the way, why do you think they're getting right with God during the reign of Hezekiah? Because the Assyrians are on their doorstep. See, when things start getting tough, that's when we start getting serious about the things of God. And, and these people you know, want the Assyrians to say, we don't want to fight you. We just want you to give up. And that's what Satan wants. He doesn't want to fight you. He wants you to give up. Look at verse 16. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me. Now listen to this. Here's, what he, here's the offer. And knee ye every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of his own cistern. Now doesn't that sound good? I mean, that sounds like the American dream. He says, you come out and make a deal with me, and you're going to be able to eat every one of his vine, every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of his own cisterns. He said, you're going to have your own land, your own tree, your own vine. It'll be great. But don't miss this. Verse 17. 
until I come. See, Hebrews 11.25 says this, and you don't have to turn there. Choosing rather, talking about Moses, as choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know what, there's pleasure in sin for a season. You know that it's fun to sin for a short time. And here he says to them, hey, you give up, you come out, you make a deal with the enemy, we'll give you your own vine, we'll give you your own tree, we'll give you your own cistern, we'll give you your own land. It's going to be great for a time. He says, until I come and take you away. See, there's pleasure in sin for a season. It's fun for a season. It's fun to get drunk for a season. It's fun to commit adultery for a season. It's fun to do the things that God wants you to do for a season. But then he comes and he takes you away. And he puts you in bondage. And he captures you. And then it wasn't worth it. And then it wasn't fun. And then it wasn't right. Notice what he says, verse 17. Until I come and take you away. And this is what, always, what Satan always wants to do. To a land like your own land. A land of corn and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. Now here's what's interesting. All throughout the Bible, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that all throughout the Bible, from Abraham to, you know, just throughout the Old Testament, God promised them a land of what? Milk and honey. He said, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Over and over and over. A land with milk and honey. A land with milk and honey. A land with milk and honey. And here comes Rapture. He says, hey, I'll give you a land like your land. A land of corn and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. See, Satan always wants to give you something that's like what God had for you. See, he doesn't want you to have the King James Bible. He wants you to have the New King James. That's kind of like the one that God had for you. Do you understand that? He always wants to give you something. It's like, it's not exactly what God planned. See, God had this plan for you, but I want to take that away, and I want to give you something that's like it. A land like your own land. A land of corn and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. Look at verse 17. Until I come and take you away to a land of your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. I'm sorry, verse 18. He says, beware. Now, keep in mind, he's talking to the men of Judah, the men on the war. He says, beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Now, here, now here's where Rabshakeh made his mistake. And here's where he crossed the line and he went too far. At this point, at, in verse number 19, Hezekiah can basically begin to plan the victory dinner. Because here's where Rabshakeh already lost the war. Notice what he says. He says, hath any of the gods, now notice the lowercase g. These are false gods. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? He said, he said what about all these other lands that we've taken over? He said, have any of their gods, of the gods of the nations, delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Verse 19. Where are the lowercase g gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the lowercase g gods of Sepharvaim? And, um, and have they delivered Samaria? Now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria is the, is the land that just got taken over by the Assyrians. He said, did they li- deliver Samaria, did they deliver? Sepharvaim, did they deliver, you know, all these other nations? Notice verse 20. Who are they among all the... Now here's what he doesn't know. Because he's just speaking these words. But the King James translators got it right when they said, when they wrote, Who are they among all the lowercase g gods of these lands? That we delivered their land out of my hand. That the... Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, Jehovah God, the, uh, the self-existing God, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. And here's where he made a mistake, because he basically put God into a corner and said, you know what, your God is just like every other God that we've taken over. The God of every nation that has never stopped us and your God is not going to stop us. And basically, I'd hear the battle's over. You know, I mean, we, I mean we're going to go through it. Don't worry. But basically, at this point, Rapshiki's already lost because he's, he's put God. He's brought God into the battle. And this is where you want to be, where God defends you. Because notice verse 21. But they got mad and started yelling at Rapshiki and telling him off. No. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. 
Go with me to Proverbs 17, just real quickly, in verse number 28. Proverbs 17. We're going to go to Proverbs 17. We're going to come back to Isaiah 36, and uh, look at the last verse, and we'll be done. Proverbs 17. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, and this is a wise king, Hezekiah, saying, answer him not. Proverbs 17 and verse number 28. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse number 28. Proverbs 17 and verse 28 says this, even a fool... When he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. He says, the Bible says, even a fool, when they close their mouth, people think they're smart. People think they're wise. You see, you got to understand this. Sometimes the best response to your enemies is no response at all. Sometimes it's right to just close your mouth. So you don't always have to defend yourself. You don't always have to say, well, you don't understand. This is what I meant. That's what I did. And you think I did this. And you think I'm trusted in Egypt. And I'm trusting in God. And those altars weren't for God anyway. And you don't understand. See, they didn't have to say all that. The Bible says a soft answer turneth away right. And sometimes the best defense is just to say, you know what? I'm just going to close my mouth. And I'm going to let God take care of you. And I'm going to let God fight my battles. And I'm going to let God defend me. Because I don't know what God is doing through all of this, but I know this. I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to get right with God. We cleaned that temple. We got the spiritual leadership right. We got the political leadership right. We, got, we had revival here. God is on our side. So you know what, Rapshaki? Thanks for the message. We'll send it over to Hezekiah. But they just kept their mouths shut. And sometimes that's what we got to do. It's just close our mouths and, and, and let the Lord avenge us and let the Lord defend us. Isaiah 36, look at verse 22. We're done right here. Isaiah 36, verse 22. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah. So they come, they, they just got the message, right? They come back to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and told him the words of Rapshki. Now, with their clothes rent meant they were mourning, they were sad, they were upset, they're scared. This verbal assault discouraged these men. But what we don't get in this chapter, that we'll get in the next chapter and the next few chapters as we go, is that God did save them. And you got to come back for the rest of the story. This is kind of a to be continued. You know, you got to come back, same Isaiah time, same Isaiah channel. Because <laughs> this doesn't end here. This is just the bad side. This is where the enemy came. And this is what he did, and this is what he said. But in the next chapter, they go to God. And God defends them. So come back next week and we'll look at that in chapter 37. Let's bow our heads.